This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. I'm Wayne Malchus, partner for our Southern Africa region. Today we'll be talking about a recently launched sixth edition of the Africa Risk Reward Index. The Africa Risk Reward Index is an authoritative guide for policymakers, business leaders and investors that illustrates the evolution of the investment landscape in major African markets and provides a grounded longer-term outlook of key trends shaping investment in these economies. Africa is still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it is no longer all-consuming. Glimpses of the post-pandemic landscape are coming into view and other issues are deserving of attention. With me today to explore the Africa Risk Reward Index are Barney Fletcher, an Associate Director who leads Control Risk Analyst Team for East and Southern Africa, Seamus Duggan, an Associate Director specializing in tactical security, and Jacques Nell, Head of Macro at NKC African Economics, the Africa-focused subsidiary of our partner, Oxford Economics. Welcome all. Let's dive straight into what the Risk Reward Index is, and I'm sure that you'll be keen to know. And I want to start off with Barnaby. Can you give us a quick overview of the Africa Risk Reward Index, the methodology behind it, and what are the key findings for this year's edition? Of course, yeah. Many of our listeners will have seen previous editions of the African Risk Reward Index. This, uh, as you mentioned, was is the sixth. Uh, so many of our listeners will be familiar with it already. For those that are new, the concept is very simple. This is a annual report put together by Control Risks and NKC African Economics, uh, from which we're obviously pleased to have Jack with us today. Uh, we work together to give countries across Africa a risk score and a reward score. Mm-hmm. The risk score is determined by our country analysts and takes into account things such as political stability, business environment, security environment, international relations, etc. The reward score is more economics focused, looking at the market potential of each country and, and taking into account those structural issues that could boost or hinder the growth of each market. Combining these two scores gives us a snapshot of the continent, uh, and the report then complements that snapshot with accompanying articles that look to explain the trends driving the change in these scores from year to year, some of which we'll be discussing today. This is not a ranking of countries. The comfortable balance between risk and reward is one that every investor is going to have to decide for themselves, depending on their risk appetite. And obviously, anything that reduces down a country to a single score or or two scores, a risk and reward score in this case, is never going to capture the nuance and the detail that an investor really should acquire before making an investment. But what we really hope to achieve with the Aspen Risk Reward Index and what I think we have achieved with previous editions and with this edition is to start a conversation, to point our clients in the direction of the issues they should be considering and highlight countries and opportunities that have perhaps been overlooked. In this sixth edition, we'll delve down a bit more into the specific scores and findings in in the discussion today. I think the headline to take away from this edition is that Africa is still in the midst of the pandemic from a, a medical perspective. I mean, we've 
seen the continent just come out of its third wave, but further waves are, are likely. But economically, it is starting to recover. There has been a, a, an improvement in, in the reward scores. The risk scores, however, are a lot more complex and driven by a lot, sorry, driven by far more issues than just those relating to the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you very much for that, uh, Uvi Barney. Very interesting indeed. Just to delve a little bit more into this year's edition, I'd like to move over to Jacques. Now, Jacques, one of the notable features of this year's results are the significant improvements in the reward scores of many countries. This must presumably reflects the economic recovery of the continent after the recession of 2020. How strong and how sustainable is this recovery? Thanks, Wayne. Uh, yes, we have seen some pretty significant improvements from the previous report. And yes, that is uh, largely due to the economic recovery that we are seeing taking shape. Uh, this also means that the biggest improvements have been in countries where uh, their strong growth has been a key driver behind their overall uh, reward performance in recent years. And so these are the countries that recorded strong growth in the lead up to the pandemic. And yeah, I'm thinking of countries like uh, Kenya and Egypt that did not perform too badly last year. And they have also benefited a lot from their strong growth in terms of their reward scores uh, in recent years. And as, as a result of that, saw a big improvement in the latest edition. The flip side of that is that uh, countries that saw the deepest contractions last year have also seen a notable improvement in their latest uh, reward scores. And yeah, I'm thinking of countries like South Africa, uh, Namibia, and Botswana. Now, on the sustainability of the recovery, uh, we have a very mixed picture at the moment. And unfortunately, it's not all good news. Uh, we saw quite a few upside surprises with strong GDP releases at the start of this year. And some of the more high frequency indicators uh, in some of the West and East African countries uh, do show that economic conditions continue to improve. So here again, I'm thinking of countries like uh, Kenya and Tanzania and Rwanda in the east, and then uh, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire in the west. But what we've also seen is how the lack of progress on the vaccination front has resulted in many countries struggling with their third and fourth waves of COVID-19 infections. And, you know, given the slow progress, uh, we are very likely to see additional waves uh, going forward. So this then not only like temporarily weighs on economic activity, you know, due to tightening lockdown restrictions as these waves hit, but it also, you know, knocks business and consumer sentiment. This sort of like stop start uh, in economic activity complicates investment decisions and then also prevents a more enduring recovery from taking shape. Thank you very much, Jacques. Barney, just to move back to you, the question that that's come up, one of the potential bright spots of the recovery is the emergence of new industries that have almost been kick-started by the pandemic. Uh, in last year's risk-reward index, there was a focus on how the tech sector had come into its own during the pandemic. And this year, we write about the biotech and health tech sector. What are the drivers for this uh, sector, in your opinion? So, I suppose the whole world has faced adversity with the COVID-19 pandemic over the past, what, almost two years now. But Africa's faced a particular challenge, and that challenge has been created by 
its lack of domestic capacity to, to respond to the pandemic. Many African governments responded really quite impressively uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of quickly imposing lockdown measures, getting test and trace systems up and running really quite fast. But all of these efforts were hindered by the fact that, for example, testing capacity was limited, supplies of medical treatments and equipment were limited, to say nothing of kind of more advanced responses such as genome sequencing and identifying variants of the virus. And these supply issues have become most acute and certainly most prominent when it comes to vaccine rollouts, which Jack mentioned. uh, right now, I believe it's something like two and a half percent of Africa's population has been fully vaccinated. Slightly less than five percent have had at least one dose. And there are a lot of reasons for this. And some countries, like some countries all across the world, are facing issues with vaccine skepticism. Some countries are, are facing difficulties in domestic logistics and rollout. But the primary cause is the lack of supply of vaccine doses that are coming from external suppliers. But you know, what's that famous saying? Adversity breeds success, right? At the start of 2020, two African, com- com- sorry, two African countries had domestic testing capacity. Now, every African country has domestic testing capacity. Vaccines are now being produced in South Africa with further projects to develop vaccine manufacturing capabilities in Senegal and Egypt and Morocco. There's genome sequencing capability being established in Nigeria, in Sierra Leone, and and elsewhere. And there's a lot of innovation going on. The the number of cited research papers coming out of African universities has boomed during the pandemic. The amount of investment going into health tech and biotech startups has boomed. Uh, And there's been a huge range of of new products developed in Africa uh, to help uh, respond to the pandemic that are, that are going into the market. And all of this growing capacity will not just help Africa respond to this current pandemic, but will have huge application post-pandemic. I mean, 41 African countries had experienced pandemics before COVID-19. Pandemics you know, have happened before, will continue to happen after COVID-19. And building up this capacity to respond to COVID-19 will help in dealing with those future pandemics. So there's obviously that huge potential in healthcare. There are already plans to turn vaccine manufacturing facilities, which are only just now being created in Africa, over to making vaccines for things like malaria and tuberculosis post-pandemic. But even if you look outside of healthcare, you know, biotech has application, for example, in agriculture, which accounts for the majority of employment across the continent. You know, you have uh, biotech developments in, in seas, for example, that, that can help uh, African farmers deal with, for example, the effects of climate change, which in recent years have been causing more and more problems in, for example, East Africa facing insecurity in in recent years. Um, Or, to take just one other quite interesting example, biotech has applications in tackling poaching. There are some really interesting initiatives going on in the continent around things like creating a genetic database of rhino horns to help deter and catch poachers, or or creating even artificial rhino horns. And for investors, this is really an area to to strongly consider. You have in Africa a very nascent biotech sector, one that's still at the moment very small, 
but it is a sector that has potential to feed into a huge number of other industries, not just healthcare, but agriculture, you know, tapping, poaching, etc. It is a sector that's currently in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, receiving substantial support from Africa's external development partners uh, and multilateral financial institutions. The African Development Bank is investing a lot. The EU is investing a lot. Uh, a lot of bilateral partners are investing a lot. But it is also a sector that even when that initial COVID-19 inspired kind of uh, assistance starts proceeding, African governments themselves are increasingly put in, putting incentives in place to encourage. Thanks, Barney. Talking about capacity, the rising debt levels uh, has been an issue uh, for quite some time. And Jacques, I'd like you to come in here and just address this question. While there's been broad economic recovery and undoubtedly opportunities, debt is also an issue. We've seen debt-to-GDP levels across the continent rising even before the pandemic and then spiked, which links us to the capacity of national governments to promote the economic recovery. So how much of a problem is the debt-to-GDP levels across the continent? Well, in short, it's a really big problem. As you mentioned, we've seen public debt uh, surging in most countries across the continent over the past decade or so. And that was then um, as these countries expanded their basic services and they increased their infrastructure investments. And then last year came and we saw uh, a significant impact on government finances. Uh, although we didn't see the fiscal stimulus that we've seen in uh, more advanced economies, spending was still ramped up across the continent. And that was then from a much weaker fiscal position. Uh, we also saw revenue tumbling due to economic weakness. And this then, in a sense, uh, laid bare the shortcomings with regard to revenue collection and specifically the scope and reach of tax collection. So now we've seen uh, debt exceeding 100% of GDP in countries like Angola, Mauritius, Mozambique, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. And debt is coming very close to this threshold in some of the North African countries, specifically Egypt, uh, Morocco, and Sudan. But something more important to consider here is uh, not just the size of the debt burden, but the affordability of the debt. And this is important because, generally speaking, uh, we've seen quite a transition towards commercial external debt, with many African countries issuing their maiden eurobonds in recent years. And this year, we've already seen a few issue additional eurobonds. Uh, a very good example that I just quickly want to talk about uh, that makes this point clearly is Nigeria. So there we've seen public debt. Uh, well, public debt isn't particularly high there. It's estimated at around 21% uh, of GDP. But there specifically, the affordability is increasingly being questioned. And just to put this affordability into some figures, domestic debt servicing costs there amounted to around 600 billion naira in the first quarter of this year, which is more than the 500 billion naira that the country generated in VAT that quarter. And looking at external debt servicing costs, uh, that amounted to around 400 billion naira in the first quarter of this year, which is slightly higher than the 390 billion uh, that the country generated in company tax during that quarter. So looking at their official projections, they see the debt service to revenue ratio 
increasing from around 39% this year to nearly 60% by 2024. So this means that nearly 60% of all revenue that the government generates in 2024, they expect to direct towards uh, debt servicing costs. So that's remarkable. Uh, but I think the biggest risk of you know failure to come up with a, a more effective solution to these uh, fiscal issues from a continental perspective now is that there will be not that there will be more uh, high-profile debt defaults that you know sort of make headlines, but that this uh, fiscal unsustainability will result in this sort of like pernicious drainage in fiscal resources that then weakens service delivery even further, and then could also put a stop to a lot of the infrastructure investment that we've seen in recent years. Now, an optimistic view would be that uh, governments will be compelled to leverage private sector resources a bit more, and that could take the form of uh, public-private partnerships or just through direct private sector involvement in, for instance, the provision of infrastructure or basic services. But, you know, again, the situation really differs in each country on the continent. And while we might see some countries make the best of the situation, other countries will undoubtedly struggle with these fiscal issues for years, if not decades to come. Thank you, Jacques. It seems clear that national governments will have quite a difficult and challenging task to balance this issue and debt-to-GDP ratios actually getting worse in future. Just moving slightly off that topic to the more tactical security side, I'd like to bring in Samus. COVID-19 seems to have dominated the news agenda globally for the past two years. But over the past month, we've seen that the US withdrawal from Afghanistan really dominated the print and electronic media. That withdrawal seemed to have marked the definitive end of Western willingness to engage in military interventions across the world. What does this mean for Africa, a continent that has seen its fair share of military intervention in recent decades? Thanks very much, Wayne. And I think just to circle back to the point you made at the beginning of this podcast, which is you know, while we have these kind of almost fluctuating yearly dynamics, whether it's the global health landscape or changes in the economic environment, when we look at businesses in Africa and the kind of challenges that businesses operating on the continent face, security is very much one of those ever-present issues, um, whether it's civil unrest like we saw in South Africa in July or some of the militancy issues in northern Mozambique. Or in fact, you know, as we're speaking now, we, we've just sort of seen a coup or an attempted coup in Guinea, you know, these, these challenges are frequent and recurrent on the continent. Um, but you rightly draw attention to what's been going on in Afghanistan recently. The US was there for 20 years and the Taliban responded and were able to effectively dislodge an elected government within the space of days, um, if not weeks. And I think that's obviously drawn attention to the conversations around global intervention. Um, but I think if we look at Africa, we, we could argue that many of the lessons that are being learned in Afghanistan have already been learned on the continent. Um, and particularly if we're talking about hesitance by the international community to commit boots on the ground and get involved on the continent, we could go back almost 30 years now and look at the events in Somalia that informed sort of the Black Hawk Down narrative. Ever since then, we've seen sort of reluctance by global powers to get involved. Um, and more recently, we've, saw, we've seen France dialing it back 
in West Africa, we've seen a lot of reluctance to get involved in northern Mozambique. Um, and these trends have been there for a while and will, of course, continue to sort of inform how security issues are responded to in Africa. And it really throws up two interesting questions. The first one is, what does the future of global intervention in Africa look like? And the second is, what does the future of African intervention in particular states and, and insecure environments look like? Now, I think with the first of those questions, we already have a fairly clear answer. Um, global actors are increasingly reluctant to commit boots on the ground. And I think we should expect to see them to, to support more in training by providing financing, by providing logistics support, and maybe even uh, intelligence support through things like satellite imagery. So kind of lighter touch, but hopefully still effective means of intervention. The more interesting question, I think, is, is what that kind of vacuum means for how Africa responds to its own crises. Uh, and certainly the con continent has something of an unfair reputation here in terms of poor responses to insecurity. And I say unfair because the, the continental bloc, the African Union, uh, has actually improved over the last sort of 20 years or so in terms of how it responds. Um, and for the period from 2003 to 2015 or so, it was particularly effective in how it responded to coup, uh, coups and coup attempts. Now, you know, the kind of natural evolution that I expect we will see is that as global powers are proving more reluctant to um, become involved in Africa, that vacuum will have to be filled either by multilateral intervention uh, amongst African states or bilateral intervention. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic to watch. Bilateral intervention, of course, when we see one state partnering with a host state to address insecurity and multilateral where either institutions or a grouping of states get involved. And I think Mozambique provides a pretty illuminating example of this. We've just seen Rwanda being engaged bilaterally by the government of Mozambique to assist in the north. And at the same time, the Southern African development community has been looking at how it can invo get involved. Um, now, there's benefits and drawbacks to both of these approaches. Uh, if we look at bilateral interventions, again, using the example of Rwanda and Mozambique, they tend to be fast, they tend to be less bureaucratic, fairly efficient, and ultimately, we could argue they may even be more effective. However, they do often raise questions around human rights, what exactly is happening, transparency, for example. Um, whereas multilateral interventions tend to come with fairly firm legal frameworks in place, as well as fairly firm deadlines for participating in a conflict or insecurity and then withdrawing. However, they can be delayed, they can be bureaucratically heavy, uh, and we can question their effectiveness, particularly when it comes to fighting battles as opposed to helping to maintain peace. Um, and as I said, I think that particular dynamic, as we see individual states trying to uh, position themselves as regional powers or to project both soft and hard power, uh, how that or how those ambitions play out against the desire for a multilateral communal approach to insecurity in Africa is definitely one of the things we need to be watching, not just over the next year, but in the years ahead. Thank you very much for that, Samus. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I'd like to thank our panelists, Samus, Jacques and Barney for their insights and perspectives, and also to all our guests for having listened and tuned into this podcast. Thank you very much. Goodbye. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. 
And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.